Hello and welcome to our latest Employment Law podcast. I'm Blair Adams, partner in the employment team at Winkworth Sherwood. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Dan Parker, who's an associate in the team. And we're going to be talking about a phenomenon that has become known as fire and rehire. We'll be talking about the legal basics of it and also about some of the examples that have been in the media recently, which, as we shall see, are not in fact all fire and rehire exercises. So fire and rehire is the popular name for a mechanism of dismissing and then re-engaging employees in certain circumstances. And it's become quite a controversial thing. In fact, it's always been controversial, but in the last two, three, four years, there's been more media and public attention on it, most of it quite negative. Essentially, there are two types of fire and rehire exercise. There's the collective type, which involves lots of employees, but there's also an individual non-collective type of fire and rehire exercise. Dan's going to talk about this first because it's at the basis of all fire and rehire exercises. Dan, over to you. Thanks, Blair. In nearly all cases, the trigger for a fire and rehire exercise is a situation where the employer wants to introduce new terms and conditions of employment. The changes they want to make can, can really be in any area. Often, they want to introduce new working patterns or new job structures, but it could equally apply to changes to pension schemes or the introduction of restrictive covenants or any other significant changes to terms and conditions. Ideally, the employer and the affected employee will agree the changes, in which case there is no need for dismissal and re-engagement. But if they can't agree, the employer's ultimate weapon is to resort to dismissing the employee and offering to re-engage them on the new terms. Hence, fire and rehire. So can that be fair in terms of having a fair reason for the dismissal? The answer is that it can be if certain conditions are met. So firstly, the changes the employer wants to make must be for a good reason. And the employer must go about trying to implement them in a reasonable way, including a fair dismissal process. If these conditions are met, but the employee will not agree, the dismissal can fall into the category of fairness known as some other substantial reason, justifying the dismissal of an employee in that position, uh, otherwise known a little bit more catchily as SOSR. If you've come across SOSR before, you'll know that in cases of SOSR dismissals, the tribunals will look at the overall fairness of the case, including the size of the employer and whether it was fair to dismiss in all the circumstances. So that's what's at the root of nearly all fire and rehire exercises. But the reason we tend to hear about them in the media is because they involve large numbers of employees, on which I'm going to hand back to Blair. Thanks, Dan. So dismissal and re-engagement, or fire and rehire, can have a collective dimension to it because it will trigger the same collective consultation obligations that apply to collective redundancies. This is because the definition of redundancy that's used in the legislation that governs that collective redundancy consultation is very wide and extends far beyond situations where the number of jobs is reducing. Now, the legislation in question is the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992, if you're interested. But for these purposes, it defines redundancy as a dismissal for a reason not related to the individual concerned. In other words, it's any dismissal that's not related to the conduct or performance or capability of the individual. 
and that's an incredibly wide definition. So a dismissal, the purpose of which is to introduce new terms of employment, would fall into this definition. In fact, the leg legislation goes even further and imposes a presumption that any employee whose dismissal is proposed in those circumstances will be dismissed for redundancy within the definition. So this means that if a fire and rehire exercise involves large numbers of potential dismissals, it can trigger the collective consultation obligations. And to remind you what those are, if you're proposing to fire and rehire 20 or more employees at one establishment during a 90-day period, you must consult through employee representatives for at least 30 days. If you're proposing to fire and rehire 100 or more employees, you must consult with employee representatives for at least 45 days. And if you don't carry out the necessary consultation, you can be liable for a tribunal award of up to 90 days pay per employee, plus potentially compensation for unfair dismissal if you don't manage the process in the way that Dan was explaining and establish some other substantial reason. So let's look at when employers might implement a foreign rehire exercise and at a few of the examples that have been in the media spotlight recently. Well, first, I think it's interesting to deal with something that wasn't a fire and rehire exercise at all, and that's the recent P&O uh, case. P&O dismissed around 800 employees, but it didn't offer to re-engage them because it wanted to replace them with agency workers. So it fired them, but it did not intend to rehire them. It was controversial because of the way that it was done and because the collective consultation requirements were not observed. However, if you look closely into the legal background to the case, as we have done, what emerges is that P&O was able to exploit certain loopholes in the legislation. Specifically, the operators of ships which sail on international routes under flags of overseas countries, as P&O ferries do, fall outside most of the collective redundancy obligations. In fact, a more helpful and typical example is the current RMT rail dispute. The railway employers have employed what's a fairly common approach here and have started collective consultation with a view to dismissing employees and engaging them on the new terms they want to introduce, as well as making some redundancies. Now, this can have two effects. Firstly, it signals an intention to go ahead with its plans without the employee's agreement. And secondly, it's probably intended to undermine the strike action that the unions have taken because it makes clear that many of the employees will be dismissed in any event. And then another example was when British gas employees went on strike for 43 days during 2021 in protest at plans to fire and rehire them as a means of implementing pay cuts and other changes. So you can see from those examples that from an employee's perspective, the fire and rehire approach is often seen as a way of trying to force change upon them without real agreement. And indeed, it can be effective. During the pandemic, fire and rehire exercises became relatively common because businesses had to implement drastic changes. Um, and they can happen in all kinds of business sector, not just industry or transport. Another recent example from earlier this year involved 1,500 teachers employed by a network of private schools called the Girls' Day School Trust. And in this case, the employer wanted to end teachers' access to a final salary pension scheme, but the teachers objected. In order to try and push the change through, the employer started collective consultation with a view to firing and rehiring the teachers on new terms that involve different pension arrangements. That threat triggered strike action by around 90% of the teachers. 
which ultimately brought the employer back to the negotiating table and a compromise deal was agreed. Now, in March 2022, partly as a reaction to what happened with P&O, but also other cases, the government announced that it was putting in place a new statutory code on the practice of fire and rehire. The aims of this are to deter employers from using the tactic purely as an arm-bending tactic in negotiation, to encourage them to behave reasonably when trying to change employees' terms and conditions, and to make fire and rehire a last resort, not the first tactic that employers use. And if employers don't follow the code, then there can be a potential 25% uplift in any compensation that's awarded to employees in a tribunal claim. At the moment, though, there's no timescale for the introduction of the code, uh, and it seems to be sitting behind a fairly long list of potential employment law waiting to be introduced. So, Dan, how would you start the key points for any employer considering using a fire and rehire approach? Well, as we've seen, it's certainly not straightforward. And um, I think what we'd recommend is absolutely treat it as a last resort. Even before the recent media attention on this issue, many employment lawyers would have advised treating it with great caution in any event. And equally, remember that your reasons for wanting to make changes to terms and conditions will be scrutinised very closely. So ultimately, ensure you have a sound business case for what you're planning to do. That's great. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, and that's all for this podcast. We hope you'll join us for future podcasts and for our other online events. Uh, please have a look at our website for details, www.wslaw.co.uk, or get in touch with either Dan or myself. Thanks very much.